And what I try to do is stretch my capacity for empathy for my neighbors without forfeiting the integrity of the Jewish story. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Palestinian leaders like Mahmoud Abbas have long spread the lie that Jews are not indigenous to the land of Israel, that there never was a Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, that today's Jews are not real descendants of the biblical children of Israel. In the eyes of many Palestinians, Israel is something foisted upon them by Europe as atonement for Europe's sins in the Holocaust. But this narrative is not just false. It misunderstands why Jews are in the land at all and why that is where they built the Jewish state. And as our guest this week would argue, this misunderstanding is at the crux of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Joining us now is Yossi Klein-Halevi, a renowned public intellectual and author whose most recent book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is an attempt to explain to Palestinians how Israeli Jews understand the history of the Jewish people and why they feel tied to the land that Palestinians also love. Remarkably, Yossi has made his book available for free in Arabic in the hopes that Palestinians and the wider Arab world will read it and gain a new understanding of the Jewish narrative in Israel. Yossi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure, Safi. Now, what led you to write this book, and what do you hope will come of it? Well, uh, the book was uh, actually born out of uh, insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I would pace late at night, and I live in a neighborhood called French Hill, which is on the very edge of, uh, of Jerusalem, of northeast Jerusalem. And I live in literally the last row of houses in French Hill, uh, which is another way of saying that I live uh, at the very end of, of Jerusalem. And as, as, I, as I was pacing at night, I, I would look out at this extraordinary and complicated view. I'd look at the lights on the next hill, which are um, from Palestinian villages, and and when there was a moon, I could see the outlines of the security barrier, the wall, which is uh, literally outside uh, my porch and a bit of a distance, separating my hill from, from the next. And, and I, would, I would have these kind of imaginary conversations in my head with my Palestinian neighbors and trying to explain who we are, who the Jews are, why we came home, as we put it, uh, why I left New York City in, in 1982 and, and moved to Israel. All of the things that, that, that I felt that not only, not only Palestinian society, but the Arab world, the Middle East, has never understood about who we are, has never come to terms with our legitimacy, our indigenousness. And so I would start explaining this. And one night I simply started writing, Dear Neighbor. And so the book really, uh, when I say that the book uh, emerges out of insomnia, I, I, I think that that's in some ways a metaphor for a deeper state of unease, uh, a deeper torment, 
uh, in the sense of being severed from from my Palestinian neighbors, having no contact, uh, which was not always the case for me. I, I worked for many years as a journalist. I, I, I knew Palestinian society. Uh, I took a journey into Palestinian society in the late 1990s. I wrote a book about it that came out in 2001. Uh, a journey into Palestinian Islam and Christianity, and so, and so I knew my neighbors, but that was before the wall, before the Second Intifada, before the suicide bombings, and so this book is a kind of a belated uh, attempt to to renew a conversation with with an interrupted conversation. Now the book is brand new. I think it's it, it maybe it hit shelves two weeks ago. It spent you know, only one week so far on the New York Times bestsellers list. But in the early going, what reaction, if any, have you gotten from Palestinians? Well, the the book has been translated into Arabic and put online for free downloading. And I've gotten several hundred downloads uh, already. And I'm beginning to get written responses, uh, not only from Palestinians, from uh, from people uh, uh, in uh, throughout the Muslim world. Uh, I, I don't want to overstate the case. I'm, I'm not getting uh, inundated with responses. But uh, I've gotten several hundred people writing to my Facebook page, writing uh, uh, to, to me in, uh, on, on email, and, and starting a conversation. Uh, many of the, of the responses are, uh, not surprisingly, uh, hostile, hateful, uh, I would even go so far as to call them genocidal. Hmm. Uh, and again, I, I, I expected, I expected that. I, I, I live in Israel. I know, uh, I know what I'm dealing with. Uh, but in addition to that, I've been getting some very moving responses. People who are curious. Uh, people who are grateful. I've been invited for coffee uh, all over the West Bank. <laughs> and. Uh, I, I got an email from a young woman in Gaza saying, uh, you know, I, I hope this will give me hope. And uh, there's a young man who grew up in, uh, in a refugee camp near Bethlehem, Dehesha, uh, who came to the States to study, and he's now writing to me a series of letters. He calls it letters to my future uh, neighbor, hmm. because uh, his argument is that as long as the occupation lasts, we can't we can't consider ourselves neighbors, which is fair enough, but he's writing to me in a, um, in a, in a heartfelt way, and it's very, very moving. And so my, my hope here is to trigger the first public conversation between an Israeli writer and my neighbors about my story, my people's story. Uh, who are the Jews? Why do we... Why did we maintain a, a, a kind of vicarious indigenousness with this lost homeland uh, that we refused to, to cede for 2,000 years? And how did we manage to actually return something that no people that's ever lost its homeland succeeded in doing? So this, this phenomenal story that we've been carrying, but which has, has inadvertently created tremendous pain to my neighbors, and I'm trying to acknowledge that in this book. And what I try to do is, is stretch my capacity for empathy for my neighbors without forfeiting the integrity of the 
Jewish story. And I think that that's a very important place for Jews to hold, to be able to be empathic toward the Palestinians, but without being apologetic and, and even self-negating. And, and one of the, 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 the things that really troubles me about the discourse uh, in the Jewish community today about the Palestinians is that we're really divided uh, into two camps. There's one camp that can only speak about the Palestinians with anger and regards any expression of empathy for Palestinians as almost a kind of treason to, to, to the Jewish people. And then there's another Jewish camp which, which is so apologetic toward the Palestinians that it's losing its capacity to defend our narrative, which is under systematic attack, and to love our narrative. And so my book is also an appeal to Jews to try to develop a more nuanced conversation about the Palestinians, to try to break out of this sterile left-right divide where we're just shouting past each other, and to, to be able to hold that place where we can express empathy for the Palestinians and, and, and also uphold the power and, 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 and truth of our story. Now, your book addresses things that you want Palestinians to know about the Israeli Jewish narrative. What do you think is the biggest gap in their understanding of that narrative? And is that gap the result of ignorance or of denial? Well, it's a really, really both very good questions. And, and I'll, I'll answer uh, by uh, prefacing it with... with uh, Something about my, my experiences over the last uh, five, six years at the Hartman Institute, uh, where I, I run this program that teaches uh, Judaism, Israel, Zionism, to young emerging Muslim American leaders. And what I learned over and over again, one cohort after another, is that the fundamental problem in the Muslim world in trying to understand who the Jews are and why Israel is important to us, is that they think of the Jews simply as a religion and don't understand the dimension of peoplehood, our attachment to a particular land, uh, belonging for restored Jewish sovereignty. These are all issues that we take for granted in our identity. Muslims don't understand about us. Muslims look at, at Jews and Judaism and say, well, okay, another monotheistic faith, there's Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, and uh, Israel is, is politics. Israel is about something else. And what we do in this program is explain, for example, the fact that a Jew can also be an atheist and still remain a Jew, which is, which is inconceivable in a, in a Muslim context. Because if you're, if you're only a religion, and you've, you've given up on faith, on practice, well, then you're not, you're not a Muslim anymore, so how can you still be a Jew? And that's, that becomes our entry point into explaining, well, Judaism works differently. We are a people with a particular religious identity. And peoplehood for Judaism is a religious category. It's a religious value. And so there is this this great capacity in Judaism to, to tolerate a, a, a wide variety of practice or non-practice, belief and even non-belief, 
And yet you still remain part of the Jewish story because the foundation of Jewish identity is shared peoplehood. So that's part of the story that we we unpack for them. And that's the story that I tell in this book. This is the story that I try to tell to my Palestinian neighbors, to the Arab and Muslim worlds, is the story of Jewish identity, a contemporary Jewish identity. My, of course, it's my understanding of, uh, of Judaism and Jewish peoplehood, but it's, it's an, it comes out of this experience of teaching these issues to very sophisticated Muslim American leaders uh, over the last five, six years. Yossi, you've spoken uh, just in in that answer, but but also at great length about Jewish peoplehood, about the Jewish story. I think that my last question could actually be posed as well about the gaps in the American Jewish knowledge of the Israeli Jewish narrative. And so I will go ahead and ask it. Do you think that American Jews have gaps in their knowledge of the Israeli narrative? I understand this is probably a prickly thing to ask. Um, And to, to complete the question, do you think that those gaps, if they exist, are generally the result of ignorance or of denial? Well, I, I, I think that, that much of what Muslims don't understand about Jewish identity and how Judaism works uh, is unfortunately true for many uh, American Jews, uh, especially young American Jews. And so I'm keenly aware, uh, as, I, as I bring this book out into the public, that American Jews will be reading and 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 in a sense eavesdropping on my on my letters to my Palestinian neighbor. And I'm hoping that this book will also be useful for American Jews, for young American Jews who are trying to understand Jewish identity, uh, their relationship with Israel. Uh, and for me, ultimately, this is a book about why I'm Jewish, why being Jewish matters to me, why Israel matters to me why I've thrown my, my fate in with, uh, with Israel. And I'm, I'm hoping it will, it will speak to, to, of course, first of all, my neighbors, but also uh, those American Jews who are, who are eavesdropping. Uh, in terms of uh, whether, whether American Jews are in denial or not, I, I, I think the problem goes much deeper. I think we're really several generations into... Uh, a deepening state of, uh, of, of ignorance, of, uh, of, of basic misunderstanding of, uh, of who we are and how, how Judaism works, who we are as a people, what our, what our purpose is in the world. And, and what I've tried to answer in this book, and again, this is entirely subjective, these are, these are my answers, is why I believe that the Jewish people matters, why I believe that carrying a 4,000-year story uh, into the postmodern world uh, is one of the great privileges, certainly, uh, of my life. And I'm hoping that, uh, that others, that readers, uh, might, uh, might be moved, even, even, even inspired. That's, that's, that's what every writer hopes to achieve. Circling back to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I heard you last week on another podcast, another of my favorite podcasts, The Atlantic Radio. You said that if Palestinians and Israelis are asked to check their identities at the door to become peacemakers, they, they're just not going to walk through the door. You said that right. Israelis and Palestinians are their stories. What, what do you mean by that? 
know, I um, I, I was on a panel recently with a uh, Palestinian activist from uh, the West Bank, a peace activist, uh, Huda Abu Arkub, and uh, someone in the audience said to ask the two of us, why can't Palestinians, Israelis, just focus on the future. Why are you speaking about your narratives and what happened in 1948? Just, just be future-oriented. And Huda and I both almost shouted simultaneously, <laughs> no! <laughs> no! Uh, we're Middle Easterners. We're, 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 we're Semites. We don't, we don't leave our past behind. We, we are in continual dialogue with our ancestors, with our history, with our story. We are the cumulative result of, of all that came before us. Yes, we're, we're, we're hopefully not imprisoned by the past. I think that's, that's a challenge for, for both peoples, not to be imprisoned by the past. But we are structurally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually incapable of, of cutting ourselves off from the past. Now, it was a very Western moment. You know, when that question was asked, well, just live in the moment, you know, and that is so out of character for Israelis, Palestinians. And, and again, I think our challenge is how do we honor the past? How do we carry our story, but also not be imprisoned by it to the point where we, where, where, where we, we, we foreclose the future, where we... we we, we're not able to take, to take the next step forward. So that's, you know, the pitfall in the West uh, in, in, in being so present and future-oriented is to, is to cavalierly do away with, with, with history, with everything that history has to teach us, with the values of the past, and, and pretend that, that, that we, we can recreate all of, of human existence uh, from scratch. And there's something in the Western mentality that leads to that. In, in the East, our challenge is how to honor the past, but still be, be, be mindful of, of our responsibilities to the future. So, and, and in that sense, I think that, that uh, East and West have, have something to teach each other. I just want to probe a little bit more, Yossi, because I worry that to some degree these stories are actually irreconcilable. You know, I'm thinking, for example, something that I think is is actually fairly central to the idea of the Jewish narrative, the Israeli narrative of uh, of building the state, is that Israel was a land without a people for a people without a land. Um, and something that I think is is fairly central to this Palestinian narrative is that there was a thriving Palestinian culture that existed for for generations before you know. Right those Jews came along. You know, so do you see in that particular example and other examples, do you see ground for compromise? And and without that, is it possible to achieve? You know, I'm not talking about forgetting about the stories, but right. I'm saying is is there a way to find a middle ground? Um, and, and if the answer is no, right. is, is it possible to circumnavigate that and to, to nevertheless find peace even if you can't find compromise? Well, look, I'm, I'm not a relativist. I, I believe that there is truth and, and, and there is falsehood. I believe deeply in core elements of my narrative. I believe that they are true. The problem is that, as you put it, I'm up against uh, another side, a counterclaimant, 
that has a very different narrative, a very different understanding of the same events that both peoples experienced. And not only do the two peoples not agree on what the events mean, very often we can't even agree on what actually happened. And the events of Gaza of the last few weeks is a perfect example. For me, as for most Israelis, what happened on the Gaza border was that the IDF thwarted an attempt by a genocidal organization, Hamas, which controls Gaza, to, to overrun our border with tens of thousands of rioters, not peaceful demonstrators, with the express purpose of destroying Israel's border and murdering Israelis. Uh, the leader of the march told, told the crowds, tear their hearts out. Tear the hearts out of Israelis when you cross the border. The Israeli army stopped what would have been bloodshed on our side, in our, in our streets. And we had every right to do it. And so the, 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 the Palestinian narrative of what happened was that peaceful demonstrators were gunned down indiscriminately by Israeli soldiers. Both sides of that picture, for me, are completely false. Israel did not fire indiscriminately, and we know that because a Hamas leader uh, acknowledged uh, just recently that most of those killed were Hamas operatives. Something like 50 out of 62 of those who were killed uh, on May 15th, which was the, the worst day, were Hamas operatives by Hamas's own, own admission. And so we were not firing indiscriminately. And the, de and, and, and the demonstrators on the other side were not peaceful, uh, so, and certainly had no peaceful intentions. And so rushing the border, trying to overwhelm the border, was an act of war, was a, 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 a threat that we prevented. Now, if we can't even agree on, on, on what happened, let alone, let alone what it means, then we are fated to live with a two-narrative problem. Even if miraculously we get to a two-state solution, we're stuck with a two-narrative problem. The only way that, that I see us moving forward is to create a space where each side feels that their story is at least being heard. And I see my book as an invitation to my Palestinian neighbors. It's not a manifesto. It's not a, a, an open and closed book. I see it more as a project than a book. I'm inviting my Palestinian neighbors to tell me their stories, and I'm starting to get those stories in letters in return. And we'll see where this goes. But let's at least listen to each other. Let's, and I believe there are people on the Palestinian side, I, I certainly know there are many people on the Israeli side and, and, and on the Jewish side more broadly that, that want to hear the other side and I feel that what's happening in, in, in uh, certainly what has happened in the Middle East is that the Israeli side, the, the Jewish narrative, our understanding of who we are as a people, our connection to that land, has never been allowed to be heard in, in, in Arab spaces. You look at the Palestinian media, there's only one story about the Jews. It is that we are not a people... We have invented our history. We are, we are pathological liars. There never was an ancient Jewish presence in the land. There was no temple on the Temple Mount. We've invented the Holocaust. That's another Zionist invention. And so this is an attempt 
of one Israeli to tell our story, to tell, to tell our story to, to Palestinian society and to the Middle East. And I'm inviting my neighbors to tell me their story. And then let's see what happens. Let's see what happens when we start telling each other our stories. I'm a writer. That's, you know, I'm not a politician. I, I, I tell stories. And that's, that's my job. And it happens to be something that, that, that I believe is a prerequisite for reconciliation. For me, the, the, the root of the, of, the, of the problem is the Arab world's continued rejection of the Israeli story, Jewish legitimacy, our rootedness in the land. And that if we were to see some movement in the Arab world, some willingness to listen to our story, I think that would have a tremendous impact on the Israeli public. Yossi, just just before we close, I want to say it's almost a shame how evocatively you speak, how interestingly you speak about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, because I know that you have so many interests beyond that. There are so many other things that you can write beautifully about, music in the past, for example. I wanted to, to give you a moment to give you some space to share with us what what do you see around you in Israeli society, you know, maybe that has nothing to do with any of this, that makes you hopeful, that makes you happy. What's in the sun? Well, Sophie, thank you very much. And, and uh, look, I think that, that uh, one of, for me, one of the most exciting possibilities uh, in, uh, in Israeli culture, Israeli society, uh, is that for the first time in the history of the state, uh, we're, we're really starting to see signs, still small, but nevertheless beginning, uh, of uh, groups of Israelis who are asking themselves the question, what should Judaism look like in a sovereign Jewish state? Because the Judaism that exists, for the most part, in the, sta- in the state of Israel uh, is what, we've, what we imported from, uh, from the past, from the ghetto. Uh, and it's a Judaism that the, the, the Judaism, the official Judaism of the state, the Judaism of the chief rabbinate, uh, is the Judaism that was that 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 was nurtured under conditions of of extreme vulnerability, uh, conditions of ghettoization, separation from the rest of the world, and so Judaism grew in a certain way as a result of being the expression of a people living in 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 as a besieged minority. What should Judaism look like in a free, sovereign, self-confident state? And, and I have long felt that Zionism succeeded amazingly in freeing the Jewish people, but it hasn't succeeded yet in freeing Judaism. And so the next stage of, uh, of, of Israeli life, of the evolution of Israeli uh, society and, and culture, I, I believe is the creation of new forms, new indigenous forms of Israeli Judaism. And I don't know necessarily what that will look like. I think uh, it's going to be different from, from liberal denominations in America in certain, in certain basic ways. For example, uh, I think they'll be more traditional. Uh, they have, uh, if, if only because Israelis have a natural connection to, to the traditional Jewish bookshelf because of, because of Hebrew. Uh, but I think that we have a lot to learn from the liberal denominations, especially in terms of egalitarianism, uh, the sense of how Judaism 
the sense that, 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 that so many American Jews have of owning their Judaism. In Israel, uh, we tend to feel owned by Judaism. And there's something extraordinarily liberating about the American Jewish experience. And I, I'm a Jew. I love Judaism, and therefore, I can do with Judaism what basically what I want. And that's very foreign to to the Israeli sensibility. And so, I think that uh, each in 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 a future American Jewish Israeli relationship, uh, I can see each side having something very essential to teach the other. Uh, American Jews can teach Israelis how to, uh, how to liberate Judaism. And I think that Israelis can teach American Jews something about the depth of living as a Jew, the seriousness of, of Jewish identity. Uh, in Israel, Jew, being Jewish really is, is, can be a life and death matter. And we live with that depth of Jewish history. And so my hope for uh, not only for Israeli society, but the future of, of a healthy American-Jewish-Israeli relationship is that we begin to share responsibility for the future, uh, both to, of the Jewish people, but also of Judaism. What is Judaism going to look like in the future? And that's something I feel that we need to work out together. And that's very different from what the situation looks like today with the enmity between uh, um, so many American Jews and, 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 and the state of Israel. But I, I, I believe that change in Israel happens through the grassroots. It doesn't usually happen from the top down. And that gives me hope for, for some growth and transformation in the way Judaism uh, will look in, in, in Israel in the future. The book is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. I'm told that books are still available for purchase in stores, but in case you can't find a store that sells books, it's available on Amazon for download uh, or order. Let's keep it on the uh, New York Times bestsellers list for uh, for many weeks to come. Yossi, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Thanks so much, Sophie. Really a pleasure. Jerusalem's old train station. Good for the Jews? In the middle of Jerusalem sits a 125-year-old train station from the Ottoman era. In 2013, the municipality of Jerusalem completed a renovation of the first station, as the site is called, and opened a beautiful entertainment and culture complex, a must-see for anyone spending time in Jerusalem. Controversially, in a city sometimes dominated by religious Jews, the first station is open on Shabbat, serving people of all backgrounds who pass through for a meal or to do some shopping. Just last week, despite objections from Jerusalem's ultra-Orthodox community, the city decided that the first station will remain open on Shabbat. If more spaces could exist, where Jerusalem's true diversity of people could mix and mingle 24-7, that would be good for the holy city, and it would certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. 
Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.